Oh, I got way too high. <laughs> you want to know the other part of that? You got way too high? I got way too high, and I'm at my parents' house. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. You gonna be, be okay? Yeah, we're gonna be good. We're gonna be good. I'm I'm through the worst of it. It was it was just like there was just like 15 minutes there where I'm like I'm going to die, and it's like no, you idiot, you're just super high. My favorite part is when you feel like you're so high that you have to like lie down face face yeah. first on the ground and just be like I need to feel the earth right now. When the final reel is spun. And the credits have been run You can count on the wisdom Of these two white guys talking film Just two white guys talking film Welcome, everybody, to TWGTF, or as everybody knows it, from the sun-drenched streets of Los Angeles to the dark and cruel streets of New York City. This is Two White Guys Talking Film. I'm, of course, your host, Ben. And I'm Tyler. How are you, buddy? You know, I've had better weeks. I think uh, I have a neighbor coming home. (laughs) I heard a loud thud in, in the hallway. Is your lady back in town? Not quite. No, okay. I'm still so recording the, from the so, living room. So the dog is going like, "What the hell?" No, the dog isn't. The dog is just like staring at the door, like, "What?" Well, she's, she's coming back. I know she is. It can't just be this. It can't be the Tyler and Ash show. We need Naomi. Where is she? He's just <laughs> banging his head against the door. He's this like, "I the, like." He's like, is, "I like the guy, but that's mom." This is the worst bottle episode of all time. <laughs> I can't even reckon time. This is horrible. The chemistry's all off. It's not right. <laughs> We're not here to talk about any of that. We are here to do noir. But before that, we should take them to the most captivating thing we saw this week. And I only watched one movie this week because it's been a long week for me, both personally and emotionally. Yeah, all, everything. We'll Metaphysically. Holy <laughs> Christ. Yep. Transcendentally. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of that. Yeah. Topographically. Yeah. So why don't, why, don't you tell them, why don't you tell them what you watched? I watched a little gem called Bonnie's Kids. It's like a 70s thriller. It's a very Tyler movie. It's uh, 70, from the 70s. It's dark. It's independent. It's kind of made on a shoestring budget. And has a downer ending. Hey, it's like Tyler Bingo. Everybody looked down at your sheet. Look what you've won. It's nothing. It's good. It's uh, I rented it from Movie Madness. I had someone please put it in Blu-ray. It looks like it would probably look a lot better in HD. But, you know, you live with what you have. And, yeah, it was a bummer. Yeah. Uh, it's about two kids whose mom is dead. Their stepdad is a gross, abusive jerk. One day, the older sister shoots him, and they head to their mother's brother's place, uncle, I guess, is what that would be, and live with him, and then more chaos ensues. Uh, there's like a... The plot takes a, a very different turn um, in the second act that I was not foreseeing. It becoming like a 90s a semi-heist two-hander. Uh, it's it's weird. Um, it's really good, though. It's called Bonnie's Kids. I feel like we've talked about this. This sounds very familiar. I have another movie that, we, that I have that I really like called Candy Snatchers, which is a similar aesthetic and uh, decadence hmm. from the 70s. It also involves kidnapping. Although this other movie doesn't involve kidnapping. But yeah, it's good. It's the first time I've seen it. So Fair enough. Huh. Well, interesting. Well, you know, I, I always I always try to bring a wide variety of stuff. And sometimes you got to bring something that's, that's big. And it's big at the time. So the only movie I saw this week, so it has to be it, is The Trial of the Chicago 7. Oh, no. 
actually okay. I've heard some mixed reviews about that movie. I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this. There are two fantastic performances trapped in a very okay movie. That is something I've heard. Actually, sure. actually, you know what? I'll even go a little further than that. There are three really good performances. I think Sasha Baron Cohen is inevitably going to be pushed for a best Oscar for acting, and he'll probably be nominated. Um, As he should be. Still, still saying Delroy Lindo. It, it just makes sense. Yeah. I think Mark Rylance should walk away with a best supporting actor Oscar for his part in the Chicago Seven. He's absolutely incredible. Uh, I've heard that he's the only one that's not really doing a Sorkin shtick. He's kind of just being a very good actor. Yeah, he he's just literally being like the best like character actor on the planet. And I'm just like, oh, I kind of get Bridge of Spies now. Like it took me a second, but I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. He's great in Bridge of Spies. That's like when I was like, oh, I want to see this guy be in every movie. And then he just wasn't, and now he's no, kind he of in something. He was supposed to be the Pope in the Pope movie that Spielberg was making. Was he really? Yeah. I don't know if that movie's happening anymore. I think the movie. I think that movie's done. But big Spielberg guy, that guy, Mike Ryland, Mark Ryland. Yeah. And I'll be honest, like I think Eddie Redmayne does a pretty solid job with what he's trying to do. I don't believe you, but. <laughs> It's sure. weird, man. Like it's weird. I want that kid to do well, even though every time I'm just like, man, fuck you, Eddie Redmayne. I, it would be nice if Eddie Redmayne fell down a well. It's the Danish girl, isn't it? It's the Danish girl. Yeah, it's the Danish girl, and he and Tom Hiddleston. I've I've never really seen them in a movie. I've just seen them at award shows because the movies that they're in, I they look so bad. I'm just like, I'm not gonna watch that. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to watch that. And they look so pressed to get an award. Like, they look so... They look like that Lenny picture, if you've ever seen it, where he's, like, up for an Oscar for some reason because it's, you know, The Simpsons and they're doing a joke. And oh, he's just mean... doing, like, the serious actor face where he's got, like, the two fingers over his yeah. lips. Like, yeah. leaned in, like, listening intently. And they had that, like, look on their face. And I was just like, I don't fucking like those guys. And it was just, like, immediately just like, I don't like them. That's fair. That's fair. It's it's a good movie. Like Chicago Seven is fine. Like I yeah. I've heard middling to fine. It depends on your how you how much you like Sorkin. I really don't it's got really good so. moments. Um I will say this, there is a sequence between Rylance and um Eddie Redmayne that is pretty damn strong. I'll say this too, it's got a really good deep bench of character acting in it. I am excited to throw it on the TV because it's on Netflix and what else am I going to do and give it like a two out of three or three out of five rating. Yeah, that's fair. And then forget it exists in like a week. Yeah. Isn't that what we do now? Yeah, we just sort of watch stuff and then just let it slowly fade from our memory. Yeah, it's got to be really good these days, doesn't it? I mean, it's got to be really good any days. You know? True. Yeah, it's very true. Well, speaking of that, we should... I head into the noir section. You got your trench coat. I got my trench. I got my fedora. I got a cigarette okay. lit. All right. Well, let's go in there and I'll lean up against this lamppost and you tell us about the first movie. Psychological thriller from 1944, directed by Billy Wilder and co-written by Raymond Chandler. Even though the two hated one another, and based off a 1943 novella of the same name, written by James N. Kane published in an eight-part serial in Liberty Magazine, we have the fascinating, preserved in the Library of Congress, Double Indemnity. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Well, I've been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? Mm, it's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dedrickson. Wish you'd tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but 
I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Eight thirty tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. Will you be here too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. It was a hot afternoon, and I can still remember the smell of honeysuckle all along that street. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Maybe you would have known, Keys, the minute she mentioned accident insurance. But I didn't. I felt like a million. Is Billy Wilder the best director of his time? Because I feel like there's an argument for it. He's up there. This is, I think, his very first film. Uh, oh, that, that can't be... It's got to be. I think it is. I think he was a writer, like a screenplay writer, and he worked in the film industry in Germany. I'm not entirely sure how much he directed in Germany. It appears that, okay, he, it appears that he maybe directed like one or two like French films before moving to America. Okay, so this is a, technically his fourth film? Third fourth. film? Fourth. fourth film. Five Graves to Cairo and The Major and the Minor are, uh, that is a terrible terrible name the first two but he'd written a bunch and he had shot another french film that's apparently called the bad seed which i have never heard of and i don't even know if it exists but yeah this is his first major film it seems like the first one with any real stars in it i guess and baxter's in five uh, five graves to cairo so i guess i'll take that back but this is the one he's kind of first known for um this is the one that kind of catapults him into uh, an award-winning director. I mean, the film after this, he makes uh, Lost Weekend, which is a big deal and wins Best Picture, actually. And so I think this is the one where people start, like, taking notice of Billy Wilder as a director. Yeah, he's really good at what he does. And I don't know, there's something about him where, like, I think this, I mean, this is the start of the run, like, and I don't think this stops for a while. It doesn't stop until, I'd say, the late 50s nope because 60s because um the apartment yeah then you have the fortune cookie which is fortune an interesting cookie is supposed to be good yeah he'd be one um, i'd like to do one day because i feel like i'll see in all of his movies would make an interesting comment there's like 26 of them there's a lot yeah ace in the hole is still my number one if you've never seen ace in the hole you should really watch ace in, ace in the hole i don't think i've seen ace in the hole so it's real good well there you go <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of, like, stinkers in there, like, like everyone has. But this really does start a pretty strong run. That includes movies like Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, Sabrina, The Spirit of St. Louis, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, uh, The Fortune Cookie, like, some absolute bangers in there. I mean, you could argue he may have claimed to the best noir movie ever made and potentially the best comedy ever made. That's a pretty hard trick to, to pull off. Some Like It Hot's very good, and, and so is Sunset Boulevard. I think this... Like, I think Double Indemnity is incredible. It's maybe a, one, a pretty solid one-two punch. I mean, yeah. if you throw an ace in the hole, which I think is equally as good, that's like a, that's like a, a one-two and then an uppercut. Yeah, you're not wrong. It's a movie. I mean, uh, what I love too. You want to hear the cute part? My mom has what do you call it? She has both of us under the roof again. So like we watched this together yesterday, and she at one point was talking to me about it. And I thought this was so funny. She said at one point like something happens, and they go. She goes, "Why can't they show violence like that today?" I'm like, "I'm like, because times have evolved." And she goes, "Oh yeah, you're kind of right." This movie shows you nothing, but you know everything that's going on in this movie. You do. I do think one of the scenes that it shows, I think, is explicit, even by today's standards. Like, they really sneak... I think when he's strangling the husband in the car, 
They hard cut to her face. They do, but I think the way that they, the, the look on her face, I think is something that like even by today's oh, yeah. standards would be transgressive. Where you're like, oh, she's like kind of turned on at, oh, this, yeah. at this moment. Oh, yeah. Like she's into this, which is, I don't like. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I said, I said the same thing too. My mom and I were sitting there. I go, I go, she's getting off on this. And she goes, and my mom goes, what do you mean? I'm like, that woman is totally buffaloed, that kind of doing exactly what she wants. She played him from the start, and that's what it always has been. And then, like, later on, it's like, no, nope, there you go. The basic premise to Double Indemnity is you have, I'm going to look at the names really quick. The whole time, can I refer to you as baby? Because he might say baby 900 times. <sighs> the way he says baby makes my skin crawl. I hate it. You're not going to get caught that, baby. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Straight down the line, baby. <laughs> Straight down the line, baby, might be my favorite. Yeah, uh, so tell us what Double Indemnity is about. So you have Fred McMurray, and he's he's playing Walter Neff, and you have Barbara Stanwyck, who plays Phyllis Dietrichson, because this is 1944, and even though a German is directing this, Germans have to be the problem. Is that what that is? I mean, this is also based off of a real case that happened in New York. Yeah, it is um, kind of one it, of those so crazy it's got to be true things, huh? It's a, it was a big deal at the time. And then lastly, the third person that I want to point out is Edward G. Robinson as Barton Keys. He's got a little man inside his chest telling him when someone's lying. Yeah, that sounds unpleasant. It sounds like a rough deal. All this, Edward G. Robinson is the Philip Seymour Hoffman of his time. That dude can just show up and be plugged into anything. We're about to get a case in point next uh, next uh, movie we talk about as well. He does show up and just kill it. Walter Neff is an insur- insurance salesman. One day, he just happens to like. It, you basically it's it has like a flashback narrative where he is bleeding and picks up a dictaphone. It picks the story essentially, and it starts with him meeting Phyllis trying to sell an insurance policy for like her husband essentially and then he gets snared into a murder plot which would trigger a double indemnity clause a double indemnity is like silly clause that life insurances have i don't really know if they have it anymore but essentially it's like the company agrees to pay double or triple if certain criteria are met like in this case he happens to have a heart attack and fall off the back of a train it'll like cause a where like two things meet it'll cause like a double indemnity so the payout instead of being like fifty thousand dollars would be a hundred thousand dollars and i just love that that's the the plot yeah (laughs) the, the plot is like guy who knows how to work the system is going to attempting to work the system for girl who is supposedly in love with him. It's, it's a tale as old as time, but like, it's just done in this really, really like, like the premise of it is like, it's the MacGuffin is what it is. Yeah. Like, you know what? Actually, it's perfect. My mom last night, there's the moment where he says to her, because he goes to her, because at first he resists. I'll give credit where credit's due. He says, you want me to do it? He goes, he goes, because you smiled at me. You're out of your mind. And he went home and he leaves and then he goes home. And then she shows up later and my mom goes, I knew it was going to be her. And I turned her and I go, well, yeah, mom, the movie doesn't really go anywhere if she doesn't come back into it. And my mom really goes, happens. oh, yeah. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> it's like, it's just a 40 minutes of him sitting at home. And she's like, what, what's going on in this movie? I'm like, well, she hasn't shown up yet. You won't let her. I would watch that movie. That movie would be great. But yeah, she shows up and he's like, yeah, I was going to, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm in love with you, baby. He never calls her by her name. He calls her baby. It's it's awful. I hate it. I, it's just the way he says it. I'm just like, Ugh. Phyllis ain't a great name. Phyllis, old person name. You want to go to the sock hop Phyllis? So essentially they conspire to kill him first. Yep. Uh, Walter Neff will pretend to be him, get on a train, fall off the back of said train, which I guess is like accidental and also some other, I guess, train. It'd be like a train death and also like an accidental death. That's what they're saying anyway. And that will trigger the 50,000. That'll trigger, yeah, and turn 50,000 into 100,000. So he'll get off the train, they'll put the body on the train tracks, and then. Just fucking swimming the money, baby. 
they commit murder. Upon getting back in the car to leave the crime scene, you have like one of my favorite touches. And I think it's something that Billy Wilder talks about a lot, which is like, that's just, it's something that just adds so much tension to the scene, which is just, they go to start the car, but the car won't start, <laughs> which is just like one of those things where you're just like, oh, fuck, they're going to get caught. Like you can feel immediately like the net like closing in on them. I think the movie at that moment switches gears. Like it just goes to like a whole nother level. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And the other thing about it too is it's not just the net closing in around them. It's the paranoia of each other as well. It's something Mm -hmm. that a lot of movies try to do, but not all of them can pull off. And Stanwyck and him and Murray are like really, really good in this. And I don't think we gave them nothing. Like Stanwyck is like, and I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, sex on fire in this movie. She knows exactly what she's doing when she answers the door the way she does. Mm-hmm. Like When she yeah. walks down those stairs, yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, okay, I could see why she was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Did she win? She did not. This movie, I think, was nominated for eight Oscars, and I think lost all of them. Oh, um, I didn't realize we had to do the Oscars this time, but okay. I mean... Should we? It's a bunch of movies I've never heard of. <laughs> well, you're probably right. Was it up for picture? Yes. And we can no, we, we can look at picture and director, but... And actress. You, you and give actress. Stanwyck her credit. I mean, they're all movies I've heard of, but they're not movies I've seen, so I can't really tell about their, their quality. So, the only person who's not buying this whole scenario that they somehow pull off... Edward G. Robinson's character. Martin Keats. He, oh, he's so good. His little man is telling him that something's wrong. Specifically that he thinks Phyllis was having an affair. And he thinks that the death was a suicide, not an accident. He's essentially like, how's a man fall off a moving train? How's a man fall off the back of a train? I mean, he's right. You watch him do it when he actually does it. And you're like, yeah, that's fair. He just like gingerly jumps down. Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, right. Trains didn't go fast at one point. You know, the funniest thing I've heard is that people thought getting on a train was suicide because they didn't think the body, the human body could move as fast as a train could. Like, they just thought you'd just become gelatin. What? Yeah, they just thought, like, you would move so fast that your, like, internal organs would shift or something like that because the human body was not meant to go as fast as a train does. Huh. That is, that is wild. People were not smart. Yeah, that makes no sense when you think about it. People were at one time pretty dumb. They were. They really, really were. Well, yeah, and I mean, one guy who isn't is Edward G. Robinson. Mm Mm-hmm. Eddie G.'s smart. Dude, how good is he? He's great. That's why I picked him as as a double feature. I mean, it works on multiple levels because the directors are both German and escaped Nazi Germany. (laughs) Yeah. And are directing noirs in America at this time period. I also think thematically they kind of work. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. And they both got Eddie J. Robinson in them. Oh, man. And when he shows up, like, by the way, it's so funny how small he is. In the second movie we do, he's not small. They keep him, they keep him pretty large and in charge in that movie. In this movie, he's, like, comically small. Like, Walter Do Neff they is... keep him large and in charge in the next I don't one? Think, I don't think anybody's that much taller than him. I disagree. Maybe I wasn't watching closely enough. I know one person's a lot taller than him in the second movie. Yeah. And yeah, he has the suspicion of them. And Barbara Stanwyck and Murray turn on each other. And it becomes... I mean, how do you describe describe this movie? So immediately at the end, essentially what happens is... Barton is like, something's wrong. Something's fishy. And Neff is just like, just pay pay her out. Why are you holding it up, essentially? Like, what do you think? What are you, what are you getting out of this? And he's like, I don't know. Just, there's something wrong. There's a second accomplice, apparently. That's what Madra G. Robinson is saying. It's that the guy who was dating Dietrichson's daughter, he thinks he's the one that's in on it. By the way, the daughter of the dude from the first marriage is, like, suspicious of Barbara Stanwyck the entire time. 
tells Neff, like, Stanwyck was married at one point, and her last husband died in his sleep mysteriously, and, you know, there's, like, these facts, and he signed, like, a will and, like, an insurance policy, like, right before you died, and it's very suspicious. And that gets Neff all, like, concerned and, can, like, oh, is he, is she gonna play me? Is she gonna try and kill me? And it essentially turns in, like, uh, the keys in motion to where there's a final confrontation where Neff gets shot and then shoots Barbara Stanwyck. She's dead, and then he goes back to the office, which is where the movie starts, and starts his confession into Key's uh, dictaphone. And then Key shows up and is like, yeah, the fucking janitors were like, there's blood all over the office. Like, you have to come down here. And then Neff, like, slowly tries to saunter away because I think Key's gives him, like, a you can run, like, you can try and go. Like, you can try and get out of here. But, like, I think Keys the entire time was looking at him like, that guy is, like, five feet from death. And then Neff lights a cigarette, and then they smoke, and the police yeah. show up, essentially. Yeah, and it pretty much does what Noir does. The concept of crime does not pay, and the guilty get punished at the end. That is because of the Hayes Code, which I think we've talked about yep. before. But essentially, no sex. Anybody who commits murder or is lustful has to like be punished by the end and that movie does this yeah it does what is your favorite scene i love when they meet and they do the flirt and i honestly think that's probably going to be the clip that they enter in on which is like mr neff you're speeding how fast was i going (laughs) you gonna give me a ticket officer (laughs) it closes on the great line she goes I wonder if I know what you mean. He goes, I wonder if you wonder. And like, then just kind of takes off. And it's like, it's so good. It's that classic Billy Wilder writing. He's, I mean, it's, it's a sharp script. He's great. I mean, aside from the movies that he directed, he also wrote Ninuchka, which is great. Also, uh, the guy who wrote this for this movie, I think he's credited as the the sole writer. It might be co-written, but Raymond Chandler, helped adapt the film and we all know chandler who's a great writer he wrote the philip marlowe novels long goodbye kiss me my sweet i think is one of them the big sleep the big sleep i was thinking of one with uh, i was thinking of bogey i was like which one's got bogey in it anyway they've all got bogey they've all got bogey in it apparently the two fucking hated working together what do you think? Chandler hated that Wilder would like leave for like an hour long lunch where he would just drink, <laughs> essentially, and then come back hammered and like be- like be belligerent to Raymond Chandler and causing Chandler to drink. And they would wait, curl- wait, wait, wait. So wait, Wilder would go to lunch and drink? Oh, Wilder would go to lunch at like a famous taqueria in Los Angeles and then come back fucking shit house almost and just be like belligerent to Chandler. You, you think you're so much better than me. You think you're better than me, Raymond Chandler. Yeah, Just because you've you... written some books. Yeah, you've written a couple of books. You know what I did? I skipped the Nazis, damn it. That's what I did. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Give me your glasses. <laughs> I have to vomit. And he just walks out of the room. Chandler essentially was like, he's a great writer. He's a great writer and director. I hated working with him. <laughs> Was Chandler also a dick, or was it just like... Chandler apparently said that he took the work... He took the job as, like, work. He apparently also didn't like James M. Kane. Didn't like the novel. Thought it was, like, poorly written. He... (laughs) Chandler's kind of a dick. But I love Raymond Chandler, so... Anyway, yeah. I think it's one of those things where you can read up on because both men talked pretty openly about how they did not like one another. And I think that's pretty funny. I don't know what more to say about it than that. It's it's a movie that is like a simple noir, but it's just really well done. Like it's really good. The op- yeah, the opening scene is great. Honestly, I I love the shit on the train. Like, and I love like how they keep bringing like because like the minute you see that guy, my mom's like, oh, there is a guy, and I was like, that dude's gonna be so important later, and it's like totally turns out to be important later. Yeah, that guy essentially is like. They didn't really look like that. Yeah, I I love this movie. It's like the epitome of just like the perfect tight thriller concept and execution. 
before we get into well what's your favorite scene we talked about my favorite scene oh um honestly the scene where edward g robinson kind of lets that the guy who's like president of the bank kind of hang himself oh or, yeah yeah just kind of <laughs> lets him like like verbally hang himself yeah that is good i do like that oh he's like we're gonna pay him out in full we're gonna pay through the nose i love movies where they're like this guy's really good at their job and that's Edward J. Robinson for this film. They're just like, man, this guy's good at his job. It's like, that dude's going to get his man. Or men, in this case. Yes. One being a woman. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the three? Yeah, let's talk yeah, about Let's talk three. about Well, actually, there, there was a uh, screenplay. There was a screenplay. Okay, I guess we'll start there. It'd be best adapted, right? Yeah. Well, there's not really a best adapted. It just says best screenplay. Best original and best screenplay. Yeah. It's kind of shitty. But you have Meet Me in St. Louis, written by Irving Breacher and Fred F. Finkelhoff, based on it on the novel by Sally Benson. You have Laura, which was written by J. Drawler, Samuel Hoffson, and Elizabeth Reinhardt, based on the novel by Vera Caspery. Gaslight. Written by John L. Uh, Bladderstorm, Walter Reich, John Van Durden, based on the novel Angel Street by Patrick Hamilton. Double Indemnity, written by Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder, based on Double Indemnity in Three of a Kind by James M. Kane. And Going My Way, written by Frank Butler and Frank Cavett, based on a story by Leo McCarthy. Going My Way is the winner, as it would prove to be a rounding sweep of a lot of the awards this that evening including best supporting actor and best actor but they didn't have a best actress and sadly that would be the next category this would lose out in is best actress and the nominees were barbara stanwyck for double indemnity greer garson for mrs parkington as Susie parkington betty davis for mr skeffington as francis beatrice fanny trellis skeffington Claudette Colbert, Since You Were Away, as Anne Hilton. Ingrid Bergman, for Gaslight, as Paula Alquist Anton. That's a solid win, I'm going to say. I'm going to go on a limb, so that's a pretty solid win. I don't know. I know Ingrid Bergman, but I don't know really anything else. You've seen Ingrid Bergman in a movie, for sure. Oh, no, I know I have. And she's like, she's in, like, Casablanca or something, isn't she? Spellbound, Notorious, Casablanca from the Bell Tolls. Yeah. That's just the forties. Yeah. That's just that's just what popped up. She mm-hmm. married Rosalini and started a bunch of his films. Stromboli, Journey to Italy, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is the mom to Isabella Rossellini. Anyway, Gaslight, a uh, great movie, directed by George Cacor, based on a on a play, also called Gaslight. That's where the term comes from. Anyway, best director, you have Henry King for a movie called Wilson, Alfred Hitchcock for a movie called Lifeboat. Otto Preminger for the classic movie Laura, Billy Wilder for Double Indemnity, and winning Best Director Leo McCarthy for the movie Going My Way. What is Going My Way? It's apparently a musical comedy starring Bing Crosby. It's directed by Leo McCarthy, Leo McCarthy, so I gotta assume it's good. You gotta, I mean, I don't know who Leo McCarthy is, but you gotta give credit. Wilder, Preminger, Hitchcock? Yeah. Uh, I don't know who Henry King is, but he was an actor and then a film director. I don't know who Wilson is either. That's about American President Woodrow Wilson. That sounds fucking boring. Sorry. Sorry, Henry King. <laughs> Jesus Christ. A 1944 biopic? No, thank you. I'm Woodrow Wilson. Oh, die already! It's just Tyler stuck in the past. God! Oh, God! Are you kidding um, me? Leo McCary was like a, a comedy director. He's known for directing like Duck Soup and The Awful Truth. Um, oh. He directed one of my favorite movies of that era, which is called Make Way for Tomorrow. It's just a really sad movie. It's just a fucking straight bummer affair. But he's a good director. So I got to assume that going my way is decent at the very least. Is it Laura? Or Double Indemnity? I don't know. <laughs> you know, but it's got to be, you know, pretty good. Yeah, you're not wrong. And, of course, we move on to Best Motion Picture, 
We have Wilson, produced by Daryl F. Zanuck from 20th Century Fox. Since You Went Away, David O. Selznick from United Artists. Gaslight, Arthur Hornblow Jr. from Metro Golden Mayor. Double Indemnity, Joseph Sistrom from Paramount. And Going My Way, Leo McCarthy for Paramount. Wow, he was both a actor, director, and producer. McCarry? Was he an actor, too? He also wrote you... the story. Oh, I thought you said he was... Oh, no, that was the other guy turned. Turned. That was Henry King. That's Henry King. Henry King was an actor. Director and producer, though. Good for him. Making all the money. I mean, he fucking directed Duck Soup, so... Yeah, made one of the funniest movies maybe ever made. He, yeah, he directed the bit that everyone has copied forever, which is the mirror bit. No, oh, yeah. Stuck suit. That is sure. You got a pretty uh, good shot. Yeah, they only made like eight of those Marx Brothers movies. So yeah, uh, I just wanted to ask uh, first, what would you give it, and what would you pair this with? Oh, man, what would I pair this with? Because there's one I want to pair with the next one. And I don't want to do it twice, but I think there's a pretty solid one that you can pair this with. It's directed oh. by the same director. Oh, yeah, I guess I could do Sunset Boulevard, couldn't I? It, they pretty much show the same exact... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. This does feel almost like this is him like, I'm not going to hit the home run this time, but I, I am going to hit a solid fucking triple. But next time I go up to bat, that shit's going out of the park. Next time Noir steps up to the plate, Billy Wilder's going to ha- hit it out of the park. Look, to me, he hit a home run in this one, and the next time he's up, he gets an even bigger, longer home run that's more impressive. <laughs> Maybe it is a grand slam to a home run. Maybe that's what it is. It's one of those movies where there's like, man, can I get a movie six stars? Yeah, exactly. In the Tokyo Dome, it would have received six stars. <laughs> I give this, okay. by the way, four and a half. Yeah, we're going to cut a lot of that. Five. You give I this five? That's fair. I really like Billy Wilder. I really like his movies. This, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, I think are perfect. And I think are very caustic the caustic views of America. Yeah, that's fair. You ready to move on? Yeah, let's move on. All right. Speaking of caustic views of America, from 1945, directed by another German expat who was escaping the Nazi regime, Fritz Lang, is a adaptation of an adaptation directed by Jean Renoir that was originally called Le Chine. I don't know how to say French stuff, so I'm sorry if that's wrong. Which if you look at a direct translation to English means the bitch, but really sort of means life is a bitch or isn't life a bitch, question mark, it wouldn't be the last time that Fritz Lang would uh, adapt a Jean Renoir film, although Renoir himself did not like said adaptions. That's, you know, how it goes sometimes. Starring Edward G. Robinson as a painter and as just a total sad sack. Joan Bennett as uh, the femme fatale. And Dan Dorea as maybe the worst person to live in the whole world, Scarlet Street. Hello, Kitty. Hello, Tiny. Oh, this is Mr. Uh... Cross. Glad to know you, Mr. Cross. Oh, uh, how do you do? You seen Johnny? No, not uh, since he left here. Uh, two coffees, please. Oh, I think I'll change my mind. I could stand a drink. A rum Collins. One rum Collins? Uh, yes, yes. Oh, come on. Keep me company. Well, uh, you see, I, I've already had a good deal of champagne. You want champagne? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, make mine the same. Ever since I first saw you, I, I was wondering what your name was. Kitty. It's really... Ca- Catherine. Catherine March. My friends call me Kitty. <laughs> what do your friends call you? Uh, Chris. Chris Cross. Chris Cross. <laughs> yes, the boys tease me about it, but uh, uh, I don't mind. Why are you looking at me? Is my face dirty? It's beautiful. I'll bet it is. 
Since I'm old enough to be your father, I... You're not so old. You don't think so? Well, you're not a boy. You're just, uh, mature. I like mature people. Well, what I wanted to say was, uh, you shouldn't be alone in the street so late at night. I was coming home from work. You work this late? Mm-hmm. What do you do? Guess. You're an actress. Oh, you are clever. Now that you know all about me, tell me about yourself. What do you do? I? I, um... Uh, well, you see... No, 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 don't tell me. You work in a bank? <laughs> no. Well, let's see. Greenwich Village is full of artists. I meet you in Greenwich Village. You must be an artist, right? Uh, well, I, uh... Yes, yes, I, I paint. Of course, you're a painter. I love paintings. To think I took you for a cashier. Mm -hmm. You know those art galleries on Fifth Avenue? The prices they charge. I saw one little picture that cost $50,000. They called it a... Um, uh, Cezanne. Cezanne. Oh, he was a great French painter. Uh, I like to own that painting. You would? Mm-hmm. For $50,000? Well, you, you can't put any price on masterpieces like that. They're worth, uh, well, whatever you can afford to pay for them. You know what, Chris? I bet I saw some of your pictures there and didn't know it. Next time, I'll look for your name. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, um, I, 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 I don't sell my pictures. Well, not in New York, you mean. No, I... Uh... I know. I bet you sell your pictures in Europe, France, or someplace like that. You can tell I don't know much about painting. I bet you get as much for your pictures in France as those Frenchmen get right here in New York. Mm -hmm. And you're never appreciated in your own country. Well, that's that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> but you know, when I paint, uh, uh, I don't think of money. I, I just paint for fun. Fun? Yes, I think it's the most fun I know, painting. I wish I had all the time to paint. Well, don't you have time? Oh, no. Uh, well, you, yes. Uh, you see, I... Uh, well, you know, business takes a lot of time. No wonder, when you get all that money. Yeah. Well, um, uh, what what play are you acting in? It closed tonight. Which one? The one I was in. What time is it? They're gonna be masterpieces. They're gonna be masterpieces. This is incredible, by the way. Had you seen this before? I had, for a while, before Netflix got shitty. It was on Netflix because it's in the public uh, domain, and you can just throw things out. You can just throw it up on a, on a on a streaming service. So yeah, it was just up there, and it was actually like in really good condition. It uh, is. It, was, it actually really yeah. is. I watched a pretty solid, like I would say, DVD worthy rip of it on just on YouTube. There's a couple you can just type in Scarlet Street and find it. And it's kind of a shame that this movie. It's pretty well known. I feel it feels like. Because it's a Fritz Lang movie, and people people love Fritz Lang movies. I'll say this, man. That little fucker can make a movie. He can make a movie. He makes a, he makes a fucking... Runs a clean ship. He really does. Like, the movie, just from start to finish, just goes. I think what's interesting about the two movies that I chose, hopefully, is that by the time Lang is, like, stepping up to direct movies, he's, like very well known he's one of the like founding members of the german expressionist movement he had directed at that point metropolis the testament of dr mabuse dr mabuse the gambler and of course m not to mention you only live once ministry of fear manhunt like <laughs> fucking just some of the best noirs of his era and, like, basically invented, like, a lot of the tropes for the noir. Like, if you've never seen M, like, boy, 
what a movie. Yeah. It might be the perfect movie where it's like, I don't even need to know that it's in another language. I'm going to be able to. I mean, it's mostly silent. Like, there's yeah. not. Like, there is some dialogue and it uses sound, but a lot of it's silent. So, yeah, this is him just. He's established. He pretty quickly integrated into the American system after he left Germany when the Nazis were starting to like go up and he was he decided to get out and this is pretty well regarded I mean it has 100% of Rotten Tomatoes I'm, I'm assuming it only has like a couple of reviews but it's out there I'm sure tons of people have watched it because it's just like a free movie on YouTube or it was just uh, noir on Netflix but it, I don't know. It was a movie that I just was like, oh, it's a noir. Okay, I'll watch it. I turned it on, and I was like blown away with by how good it was. Pretty incredible. And the reason it's incredible is because of kind of the little three-hander you have in this. We'll get to the main event first, but first of all, who plays Lazy Legs? <sighs> so Lazy Legs is it's Catherine Kitty March, played by Joan Bennett. She's great. Like, you want to talk about, like, like I feel like Barbara Stanwyck was like, I'm going to be the greatest femme fatale. And then, like, Joan Bennett was like, hold my drink. You know, her final role is in Suspiria, right? Really? Yeah. She plays one of the madams. I'll be danged. I did not know that. That's awesome. That It's really cool. She had worked with Lang a lot. They did a movie a year before with Edward G. Robinson. Called The Women in the Window. She stars as Alice Reed. And she also did a movie called Manhunt. Do you know what this plot of Manhunt is? She hunts a man. No, oh, it's about a man who goes behind enemy lines in the Second World War and attempts to kill Hitler. Really? Yeah, I think it was Fritz Lang working out some uh, issues. He didn't write it, but yeah, he was working out some uh, some uh, what is that? He wanted that to happen. Is what I'm trying to. That's what I'm trying to say. It's based off a book, though, so he didn't write it, but. The book's name, by the way, is Rogue Male. I think Manhunt is a better name, but a more generic one. Sorry to get back on track really quick. The movie is a three-hander between Robinson, who plays Christopher Cross, Joan Bennett, who's Catherine, and then Johnny, who's Dan Daria, who I fucking hate him. <laughs> he is he is the most hateable. He's just got a face that you're just like, I want to I want to punch that face. I'm gonna punch What's that it face gonna later. cost to punch that face? How much money do I have to pay to punch that guy in the face? Oh no! Oh, that much? Huh? No, that seems reasonable. You know what? I could probably, I could probably swing that. Can I? Can I have three payments of uh of that to, to get that done? Yeah, no, he he does suck. He's a small time hustler. He essentially just bugs his girlfriend for money, loses said money, and then says, "I'll buy you a ring eventually." That's like his whole shtick. Chris, which is Edward G. Robinson's character, is like an amateur painter and cashier who's stuck in like a marriage uh, to the person who whose husband is said to have died. But in reality, he ran away. And then when the husband shows back up, tries to get him to pay him money <laughs> to take the wife back. That's 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 a bad situation. It's not great. Essentially, the whole plot is Kitty and Johnny are together. Kitty thinks Chris is big time painter. He isn't. And uh, he's a he's a cashier. It's not his fault, too. And yet it's completely his fault. He doesn't have the balls to tell her, no, he's not. But he also doesn't have the balls to say, no, I'm not like like or or to also not deny it. It's like. If he had just said, no, no, I'm not actually a famous painter, none of this would have happened. You feel so bad for him. It's a it's a tragedy. He, and, you know, the main character has a fatal flaw, and that fatal flaw is he likes attention from attractive young ladies. And that's what causes a horrible downfall, is instead of being like, no, I don't have money. I'm not a famous painter. He's like, yeah, maybe. And then starts stealing money from insurance bonds from his wife and then like money from his employer and eventually what ends up happening is kitty's shitty boyfriend sells some of his paintings 
a broker is like these paintings are incredible which they're okay they're fine for movie paintings um, <laughs> oh my god look at you getting snippy I think the self-portrait is great. I think some of the other paintings, I'm like, eh, they're okay. <laughs> the broker is like, the person who painted this has a lot of talent. Let's do an art showcase. Let's get some hoity-toity people in. So Kitty, shitty boyfriend, basically says she painted them. Kitty being like a former model and actress kind of just goes along with the ruse. And what ends up happening, I'm really blown through this plot because there's not a whole lot there. Chris paints Kitty a self-portrait, essentially. And then that like draws all this huge attention. She starts becoming famous. And then Chris, her cover is blown because Chris's wife is, starts yelling at him that they're selling paintings at place downtown. And she immediately thinks that he's stealing the paintings. Like he's like been copying this painter, which like, that's so stupid. <laughs> it's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it's one of the things in the movie where I'm just like, I don't know if I would believe that, but it's whatever. And that like essentially like causes it to unravel where like Edward G. Robinson goes over to the apartment that he rented for Kitty, finds that uh, either Johnny has was there or was leaving and essentially like, confronts her like, have you been fleecing me? Like, have you been taking my money? She like taunts him. And as a guy going through something right now, I'm I'm 100% on Edward G. Robinson's side to a point. Yeah, um, definitely don't commit murder. <laughs> well, 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 hold, hold on. Now, I, I'm going to say something a little controversial here, but it's got to be said. She really, really feels like she was asking for what's about to go down. No one's ever asking for it, okay? <laughs> to be fair, you're right. But at the same time, she what? didn't... Okay, Please, you know for the God. Okay. Don't you know say what? that. I'll say this. She wasn't asking for it, but she really wasn't doing herself any favors to not put herself in that position. She's being very mean, is what I'll say. Yeah, um, there we go. You know what? Like, oh, like needlessly mean. Things. Needlessly mean. Like, she was, like, pretty much kicking a man who was down to, to down further. And he breaks. The movie's a tragedy. And the movie punishes him for this. Like, punishes him probably harder than it punishes anybody else in the movie like oh i'm so everyone glad gets you, punished i'm so glad you say that because you're absolutely fucking right like he murders her with the ice pick that johnny had just touched and he puts the ice pick like back in the ice he leaves johnny comes back drunk <laughs> in her car walks up to the apartment grabs the ice pick immediately finds the body of the police are immediately like well this guy did it because he was holding the ice pick <laughs> and he's like uh no i no i didn't he's like uh, i didn't he's like well you were like driving her car spending her money living in her apartment <laughs> and he's his whole story was like no no it's this chris guy who like actually does the paintings no one believes him johnny even though he is a shithead probably doesn't get deser deserve to be framed for murder and gets uh, the electric chair which Death penalty? Bad. Let me just say that. Not good. Don't do it. He gets fried and is taken to the... It's my, one of my favorite shots. It's, it's a very simple shot. It kind of reminds me of Taxi Driver, like the famous Taxi Driver shot, where it's like a tracking shot. They take him from his jail cell down the hall, and then you see like the like witnesses in the execution chamber, and then he just starts yelling, like, I didn't do it. Like, someone has to yeah. believe me. Why can't I get a break? I didn't do it. It's great. It's haunting. It's like a real good, oh. hey, maybe hey, maybe execution's not the way to go. <laughs> oh, he's 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 screaming the whole way because it's over. And, like, I'll say this. Whenever G. Robinson stabs her, you're just like, well, that's upsetting. Well, that's not good. That's The movie does paint it like, wow, that's the most horrifying thing I'm going to see tonight, probably. Yeah. Hopefully. He's so little. He's a little man. He's like the Rey Mysterio of acting. And... He's great because he got brought up in the the HUAC uh, hearings, and he, unlike some people, kept his fucking mouth shut. Yeah, I've heard he's a notoriously good guy for stuff like that. He also was the first person to buy a Frida Kahlo painting. Edward Robinson, good dude. Yeah, don't disagree. Bad politics in this movie. Uh, he does kill someone, so can't all be winners. But he ends up being haunted for the rest of his days uh, by the voice of Kitty. 
and Johnny being a love in heaven. And he attempts to commit suicide. It causes him... I mean, he lost his job because he stole money from his employer. Like, his oh. boss is basically like, I have to let you go. <laughs> and the, the boss is essentially like, was it worth it? <laughs> yeah, the boss It's is... a real heartbreaker. Which sucks, too, because the boss is stepping out, too. Like, what we don't tell you is, like, Chris has, like, a wife, and his wife absolutely sucks. Not a great wife. I'll say this, too. I had to rewind the movie four times when her dead husband showed up. I was like, who is this? The movie doesn't, the movie does not lampshade who it is. You're just like, I'm supposed to know who this guy is. And then you kind of like, Oh, I think I know. Maybe it's when he's like, well, I'm not legally married to her if you're still alive. And then he's like, well, if you get made $10,000, then that's so fucking mean. That's such a mean thing to do to a character. Anyway. What do you mean it's a mean thing to do to a character? It's just like Chris is already such a sad sack. And then to just be like. <laughs> oh, like, I see what you the mean. The ex-husband show up and be like, well, I guess not ex-husband. Like husband show up and be like, you got to give me money in it for me to get back with my wife. <laughs> He's like, but I don't even want to be with her. I'll give, give Chris credit where credit's due. He exposes that guy. He does. It's great. The movie's pretty good. He, Chris, again, uh, because of everything that's happened. So essentially, we didn't tell you this, but the boss has a young mistress that he's out on the town with. And Edward G. Robinson says to one of his like work buddies, essentially, like, like pines for to have something like that, which kind of sets the scene for Kitty to show up and uh, take all of his money. <laughs> My favorite scene is the train scene at the end where Chris is trying to justify allowing a man go to the, yeah. to the gas chamber to go get electrocuted for a murder that he didn't commit. And what I love about that scene and what I love about the, the opening scene is that both scenes are shot with people smoking off screen. So you have smoke like rising from a mm. below into the camera. So it gives this like a, a effect that these characters are already trapped in hell and just don't know it. And that. Oh, interesting. Chris eventually does become aware that he's sort of trapped in this like hell essentially because he's like constantly tormented by the the sound of of Kitty and Johnny like talking to one another and it keeps him up at night it causes him to attempt to kill himself uh, unsuccessfully and then essentially he's left a broken man living on the streets of New York he's wandering around constantly hearing their voices in their head and the last shot is him walking by the art studio seeing the self-portrait that he painted for Kitty being sold, looking into its eyes, and then just kind of uh, walking away. He, it starts with him in a crowd, and then it cuts to him alone on the New York streets with the voices still playing. And that is one of the bleakest endings to uh, a noir movie at this time period, before the ending started to get really bleak, like in a well, lonely place. Where, because, uh, because you're right, he is punished more than anyone. For one reason, he has to live with it. Mm-hmm. And it's like so haunting because Robinson plays it as just like this broken man. And he is just like, there's no one else to be punished. So it has to be him consistently. Mm-hmm. It's the like Kafka thing where it's, it's you know, the, the metamorphosis is a story about a man who has a terrible life. And then it gets worse because he turns into a cockroach. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of that where Kurt Vonnegut had this like chart where you can like chart pretty much every story where it's like boy meets girl boy loses girl boy gets girl back like that's like a arc that's like another arc is like you know you can chart every arc on this like y-axis where it starts sad gets happy gets sad again or it starts neutral gets happy gets sad ends slightly above neutral mm-hmm. this is one of the stories where it starts bad gets good and then ends going bad infinite like infinitely my favorite thing was the metamorphosis was just it starts bad and then the line just goes off the page and then there's a little infinity sign (laughs) like it never gets good it's just only bad that's Um, fair and this sort of feels like it has like up like good moments but it's mostly in the bad area and then it ends even further in the bad area yeah you're not wrong before we go any further what's your favorite scene 
you know what it is? Honestly, the beauty of it is it's because Edward G. Robinson's on screen almost the whole time. Just anytime he's interacting with anybody, because like that dude plays so many different hats with so many different people. The scene where he counts out that money that he's going to steal, then puts it back and then goes and asks for the loan is so funny. It's good. Yeah, it's he's I don't know if he's underrated. Dude, I think Edward G. Robinson might have two Oscars. So, yeah, so I don't think he is underrated, but I don't see people when they talk about people from this time talk about how great Edward G. Robinson was because Little Caesar, he's Little Caesar, Little Caesar, I should say, actually, that's how you actually pronounce it. Yeah, I think Cheyenne Autumn, the John Ford film, he's great in the Ten Commandments. Has like a bit. Where's your God now, Moses? <laughs> oh, The Stranger, the Orson Welles film. That's a good movie, actually. You want to talk about good another, ass movie? You want to talk about another little man like pursuing movie? Him next to Orson Welles must have been hilarious because it's just like two bowling balls, but one's much bigger than the other. <laughs> Very true. I mean, let's also not forget, too, like, this is the guy who does, like, years down the road. Where's the name of that movie? Soylent Green? No, not Soylent Green. He does one. I know he does. No, what is the name of that movie? Uh, I'm just going to start at uh, Cincinnati Kid. That's it. I'm trying to find the year, though. 65. Really? Damn. Yeah. Looking at slightly more about the Cincinnati kid. Good lord. He did a lot of movies. He's a um, professional actor. One thing I didn't say really quick about Double Indemnity is it was the first time a director asked him to play a supporting role and not the lead in a movie. And he almost didn't take it, but Billy Wilder essentially had like a meeting with him. He's like, you perfect with this, perfect for this role. This he would was- absolutely kill it. This was the Clue Gulliger speech from um, last week's show. He's like, you should probably take this role. You should probably take it. And later in life, Edward G. Robinson said that, like, uh, it's probably one of the smartest decisions he's ever made because, like, had he not done that, he probably wouldn't have gotten offered more roles like that. Well, because it's, it takes away from the, yeah, see, like, it's, it's not that. It's like he gets to play a real person. <laughs> to play a real person yeah he's yeah he starts moving into like a character actor sort of phase and he's fucking so good anyway does he invent the character actor Hmm. i don't know if he's the first character actor he's got to be close though i think he's one of the first guys to go from star to character actor because he was the dude who sold the picture for you know, most of the 30s. If you you couldn't throw a, a cat out the window and hit a Warner Brother movies that didn't star Edward G. Robinson as the heavy That's like, bad true. guy. That's like, he was true. he was a big deal for a long time. What would you pair this with? I would pair this with the honeymoon killers. It's kind of like a reverse honeymoon killers. You're getting it from the perspective of the person being duped. Yeah, and I just extremely not liking it. Yeah, pretty much. And, I mean, I'll say it, four and three quarters. I, I give this a solid like four, four and a half. So, yeah, we're around the same spot. Yeah. It's pretty good for a movie that Ben had not heard of. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was very impressed with this. Yeah. Well, so far, everyone, I've just been like, hey, you should watch Scarlet Street. has, like, really liked it. So, yeah. Well, that's, that Hopefully the sense. trend continues. Brings us to the end of this episode. That means you gotta tell us what we're watching next week. Yeah, well, next week... Well, next week, we are going to continue with the noir theme. And what episode is next week? 789, I think. Is that right? I think so. Next week, we are going to do two more noirs, but we're going to do something a little different for these noirs. Because it is our 79th episode, and I've decided that if I get to do the 79s or the 89s or the 99s, whichever one ends in 9, I'm going to try to reach back to something we did from one of our episodes where we talked about Filmmaker. And we have a list of movies that didn't make our Mount Rushmore's, and I'm going to pull for two of those for Noir Vembrans. And the first one is a little film from 1989 where two young ladies team up, one being Jamie Lee Curtis and the other one being... Catherine Bigelow, and they make a little movie about a police officer 
who has to stop a killer from hunting her who's become obsessed with her. The 1998 thriller crime noir, Blue Steel. Blue Steel. And then we're going to once again attempt to make the apology letter. And we are going to travel to 1992 where we are going to look at a revisionist noir movie with Quentin Tarantino and, you guessed it, the Reservoir Dogs. So 1992's Reservoir Dogs. Some would call that a Hong Kong noir movie because it was kind of based and kind of ripped off a movie called City on Fire. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You might know what my most interesting movie of next week's going to be. You're getting Blue Steel. What, what more do you want? What more I'm, do just you want? Say, I'm just saying. You should also watch City on Fire. It's very good. Fair enough. I'm not saying Quinn Turner was a bad filmmaker. I'm just saying that he did oh, I steal know. City on Fire. <laughs> <laughs> You made a very good movie out of it. You might have you might have to you might have to throw that up on the Plex. Uh, I think it already is up on the Plex. Oh, fair enough. I mean, Blue Steel is a very good movie, and uh, we'll get to talk about uh, Catherine Bigelow. Love Catherine Bigelow. She is your only lady. Still, it's always fun to look back and see what did not get on the list. Oh man, I'm gonna have so much fun playing Last Temptation of Christ for no reason. Uh, Last Temptation. Alice doesn't live here. Definitely did make the list though. Oh, did, didn't it? Whoops. Well, then we'll just delete that one off there. I was like, um, wait a second. Oh, my God. Um, the Last Temptation of Christ, the insider double. <laughs> Long. <laughs> <laughs> Movies that make you fucking your ass fall asleep double. Because you have, like, almost all of Martin Scorsese's filmography that... Oh, you mean movies that were, like, up for... Yeah, that were, that were in contention. I see. Oh, man. Oh, you're gonna get... I'm... Oh. That Miami Vice straight story double is gonna be very fun. <laughs> so you're just so you're just gonna you're just gonna do this the most backwards way possible. I'll try and figure something. I might pair one with a, like a different movie. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, honestly, like if I, I could, I think I could have convinced you to say "Hateful Eight is a noir. It's a western. It is. So for next week, it's Blue Steel by Catherine Bigelow and Quentin Tarantino's first film, Reservoir Dogs, and I am excited to talk about these two. Revisionist noirs, as Tyler calls them. Uh, neo noirs. Neo noirs. Reservoir Dogs might actually be post neo noir. Anyway, I, that's it's stupid shit that I like thinking about. It's a, it's a story for another day, guys. You can follow us at TWGTF Pod on Twitter. You can follow me at ET Critic for the Empty Theater Critic. Yeah, those are the places you can follow me. Tyler, is there anything they can follow you at? You can follow me down a dark alley in New York. Fair enough. And for TWGTF, Two White Guys Talking Film, I'm, of course, your host, Ben. And I'm Baby Baby. And remember, guys, if you come into the video store and you see Tyler flirting with a leggy blonde with an anklet, well, you know, let him figure out his life choices. I mean, all I'm saying is if he falls off a train, double indemnity, baby. Boom, boom. Just two white guys talking film.